0: A massive black cat, very long in the leg, very muscular looking, round ears. The whole body language of the thing said, this is my road,
1: I'm not moving for you.
0: You say, well, I've seen this big cat. Some people just flatly refuse. They think that Britain's such a sweet little island, we shouldn't have predators that size.
1: Welcome to Big Cat Conversations. We speak directly to people who've encountered one of Britain's big cats... We also discuss the bigger picture. I'm Rick Minter, and thanks for joining me. Hello, and welcome to episode 29 of Big Cat Conversations. We're coming to you in late July 2020. Good to be back with you, and I hope everyone is doing okay. A feature of the last two weeks' reports to me has been a couple of descriptions of some oddball-looking large cats which really don't fit what we're used to. We're going to record interviews with those witnesses for a future show, and it'll be called something like The Misfits. And that will be a note to me especially that not all of the sightings fit the standard three suspects of Black Panthers, Tan-Coloured Pumas and the Lynx. If anyone else listening has encountered an oddball large cat, we could fit you on that episode if you'd like. In this show, we're going to hear of two very different encounters from Devon, separated by almost 30 years. First, we're going to speak with John, who has a small holding in North Devon. He'll be talking about a sighting he had in late June 2020, about a month before this episode comes out. In the second, longer part of the show, we'll hear about a nighttime confrontation that our guest Dan Baines had in South Dartmoor, in the south of Devon. Dan has other interests relevant to our subject of big cats, including folklore, so we'll have a slightly wider discussion with him after hearing about his main encounter. Righto, we're starting now with North Devon in late June john had a sighting unexpectedly and we're very grateful that john can join us at short notice to talk us through that event because as you'll hear it's a very distinctive type of cat that he witnessed and i think he realized that as it was happening so thanks for coming on the show john
2: hi rick nice to speak to you well take us through
1: what happened john
2: okay a couple of weeks ago nine o'clock in the morning i was at my field just popping off a few rats That had been eating the corn turned around and at the top corner of my field entered a very, very large blackish animal. Immediately, I just was gobsmacked. What the hell is this? Uh, The size of it was something I haven't experienced before. It came into the field through. A very thick hedge, probably about uh, six foot wide, the hedge, six foot thick. I suppose I had a visual contact with it for 10 seconds with no sort of interruptions in the sight of it. It came in at the top of the field and progressed down adjacent to the fence to the bottom of the field and disappeared out of sight into woodland. Yeah.
1: The colour was mainly black, but there was something else about the colouration. And you were not seeing this side on, pretty much, John, weren't you?
2: Yeah, I saw it from its right-hand side. And I guess I would have been about 60 metres away. So I was pretty close to the animal. Um, I don't know if it was aware of me. It certainly didn't seem spooked in any way. It didn't seem in a hurry. It wasn't on a gallop. It was on what I would call a canter, but the way it carried itself, immediately when I saw the animal, your mind goes into a process mode. Right, what is it? What isn't it? Immediately I knew it was a cat of some description. Mm -hmm. So I began to eliminate what it wasn't. In my field, I've had foxes, dogs. Uh, roe deer and the grass in my field at the time the animal came in would have been about 12 inches high, give or take. This animal towered over that absolutely towered over it. I would say hmm, probably almost two thirds of its body was above the grass. Yeah, scale compared to a dog. Oh, I would say in mass, probably. Double a Labrador. So anyway, I'm beginning to think, right, I'm not seeing things. I know what it is of some description. Mm -hmm. It's a cat of some description. I had no idea what it was. So I started with the obvious thing that stuck out was its front shoulder muscle. It was huge. It was just enormous. It was like the weightlifter of cats. (laughs) That front muscle was the one thing that really stuck out. The way it carried itself, the way it countered down over the hill, it wasn't dog-like. So I knew it wasn't a dog. Mm. I knew it wasn't a roe deer because it just didn't look like a roe deer. It had a, a very, very large head. I didn't pick out any ears. There was just, you know, a mass of head very long, sleek animal. But unfortunately, I didn't clock its tail. And I don't know why I didn't clock its tail, because I looked for a little white bum of a roe deer, and it just wasn't there. Mm. But, you know, the shape of a roe deer, it just wasn't nothing like it. You know, like I said, you begin to process these things Not so much what it is, but what it isn't. And you certainly don't expect to see an animal of that nature in North Devon.
1: Yeah. And it was doubly weird, presumably, for you, because you very quickly appreciated that it was a cat, but you presumably appreciated that the coloration was pretty different from what most people would see. Can you tell us about the coloration?
2: This one predominantly was dark as in like a a wishy-washy black. But from its hind legs towards its belly and front legs, it had patches of either white or cream. And I couldn't tell you, you know, whether it was white or cream. It was just a much obvious lighter color than the rest of it. And I suppose, percentage-wise, 10% of discoloration throughout the side of its body That
1: is very, very interesting and and significant.
2: Obviously, I couldn't believe what I saw. And over the next few days, I was very, very careful of who I told. People just think you're bonkers if you go around saying I've seen a wild cat in North Devon. Mm -hmm. So I, I sort of mentioned it to just a couple of close people. Then curiosity got the better of me and i began to search it online as to what it could be i thought i would better do this quick before i lose this image of in my mind of what it was yeah so i began to you know typed in wild cats up come the obvious of tigers and cheetahs and so on Mm. and i narrowed it down to a panther The only trouble I had was the discoloration. The panther, black panther, the images on Google showed no signs of discoloration. Yeah. But if you can take away that discoloration, that's what I saw. That was the animal I saw.
1: Yeah, yeah. Did you straight away think when you saw it? It was discoloration and imperfection and possible a sign of inbreeding. Or did you just think that's weird? I'll just see if there's a replica of one of those on the internet or maybe several like that. It's not a unusual, oddity, quirky one.
2: No, I had no idea about inbreeding and discoloration. Hence why I rang Exmoor Zoo and they put me on to you and you informed me about it. that's the reason why, uh, because of inbreeding. No, before I contacted you, I thought, well, what is this animal? Because there are several images online of this animal, but none of what I saw. I had the outline, I had the muscle, I had the head, but I didn't have the discoloration in the fur.
1: It's unusual to have that discoloration. I think to me and to close colleagues in my sort of inner circle of, of good contacts who would take reports, I only know about four. Which have had white, I would say, just one singular white blaze on, on the chest or on the side, but never multiple ones. So this makes it even more interesting.
2: Almost like freckles on a face, it was. Okay. Some were bigger spots, some were lesser spots, but they weren't perfect spots. They were imperfections. Did
1: they vary in scale? Some were splodges and some were freckles.
2: Yeah, yeah, they did. They did. I would say some were probably... uh, 20 to 30 mil uh some were smaller but they were certainly bigger towards the hind legs and as they went up the body towards the head they got smaller
1: yeah but in terms of the animal's physique and litheness and health you know you're suggesting it looked pretty healthy and powerful apart from the discoloration admittedly you only had it for 10 seconds but
2: yeah i couldn't see anything wrong with the animal at all. I mean, it it carried itself very gracefully. It wasn't sprinting. It wasn't in any hurry. It didn't look stressed.
1: It was confident.
2: Very, very confident. Yeah, yeah. I would say, from what little I know about these things, in in the best of health. Yeah. Do you think it knew
1: where it was going? Do you think it indicated that it knew that route and had been that route before?
2: It was certainly carried itself very confidently. But it sort of knew where it was going, didn't it? Well, it didn't hesitate. It didn't look around. It didn't sort of stop halfway and wonder where it was going. It didn't acknowledge me. However, I was so gobsmacked I was probably stuck to the spot. And it just went into the undergrowth and, I guess, into the woods. Yeah. But it's quite quite a large wood. So um whether... It's been that way before, I don't know. To get into the wood, it would have to have jumped a four-foot fence, which I'm suggesting that an animal like that would make nothing of that.
1: Sure. Although they tend to, if there are sort of gaps and holes or things they can sneak under... We tend to think that that's what they do rather than leap up. I mean, they have been seen leaping up, and, and very impressively, they really are like gymnasts, like very
2: powerful gymnasts. But Well, this one came through the hedge, Yeah, but there was no way it could have got under anything to have got out of the field. It would have had to have scaled the fence, had to.
1: Fair enough. Well, I mean, it's great that you will put a camera up in that wooden corner by the uh, woodland, and we'll have to hope that it does come that way again. We've got to take the opportunity if we can. It's splendid that you're prepared to host a camera.
2: Yeah, I should look look forward to uh, any footage that we can get.
1: Of course, it's terribly challenging. Not many people uh, achieve it, and it is a bit potluck. It might never come there again. You hadn't heard of any gossip. This was a complete surprise to you to have an event there, wasn't it?
2: There's been no gossip whatsoever. I mean, when you take an animal of that size, that nature, it has to feed. So you would assume that it would feed on maybe lambs, rabbits, etc. But there's no carcasses or no reports of anybody losing lambs.
1: Yeah, but there's plenty of deer about, aren't there?
2: Yes, there are roe deer, which... I haven't seen for some time, but that's not sort of a, a daily occurrence. Mm. So, uh,
1: But in that wood next to you, there'll be deer, won't there? There'll be roe
2: deer. Very much so, yeah.
1: And nature would clear up very quickly. I mean, it needs one of those every week and a half, and it would supplement that with rabbits and pheasants and pigeons and that sort of thing. And of course, fawns. This time of year, plenty of fawns about.
2: Yeah, there's plenty of everything around at the moment.
1: How do you feel about it, John? Are you happy for a panther to be wandering in your field, or did it sort of shake you up and you think, gosh, I to have to be on alert?
2: When I first saw it, I was almost sort of felt privileged, really, if you can call it that, that you would see such an animal. Having seen it and digested it, and um, yeah, it's a bit scary, isn't it? <laughs> because perhaps not so much for me, because, uh, you know, I can. I can run and hide behind a door. But uh, for the families that walk very close, very, very close to where this animal come in, that's a different matter. Because mm,
1: there's a footpath, in we were just discussing before we came live, there's a footpath through that woodland where it went into, which local people would use and dog walkers would use.
2: Yeah, yeah, there is. There are footpaths through that wood, but also where the animal came in is quite heavy with walkers with dogs children so uh, it's a dangerous animal it has to eat um and if it's hungry who knows
1: so you've got mixed emotions a lot of people have mixed emotions about these things
2: yeah very much so very much mixed emotions you know it's just not something you expect to see in north devon when you're not used to that sort of thing you know, it's really difficult to comment on what you feel. In my opinion, no, it doesn't quite belong around here.
1: But if they've been there for decades, John, which um, they've been reported for decades, particularly in your part of the world, but...
2: Yeah, I mean, you hear of foxes, they're coming into the towns and, and so on. Perhaps the wild cats are next.
1: Yeah, I think it depends on where the territory is. One can only speculate about the territories, but... You might never see that one again. You might see it several times, or have indications of it being around several times.
2: You're absolutely right, Rick. I might not see it again, but I'd be well. I am amazed that nobody else has seen it either. Or maybe they're just a bit wary of who they're telling, because it's not the sort of thing you have a conversation uh, with. Then the pub, is it? Seeing is believing, isn't it? And unfortunately, I have. No proof of what I saw that day other than what I can describe.
1: As you're aware, they are incredibly semi invisible creatures because they have to be. That's how they get their prey. They're ambush predators. You've got to stick to the shadows and just work on springing out and, and surprise and, and be
2: stealthy and furtive. Yeah, yeah. So that's my story. Yeah, well, we hope we
1: can speak to you again about getting something on the camera. That's terrific that you're going to do that and, and you want to be on the case let's hope it doesn't cause any issues locally uh, of course it might be 10 miles away by now we're very grateful for you coming on big cat conversations john so thank you very much
2: not at all rick absolute pleasure thank you for having me on
1: Just to update you on the latest situation with John in late July, around a month since he had the sighting. John's been in touch to say how much he enjoys using the trail camera that he's set up at the site, even though it's just filming the deer and the foxes mainly. He's certainly going to persevere with the camera, watching what comes through his land at the corner of the field where it meets the neighbouring woodland. And just to show the location, John actually filmed the field and the route taken across it by the cat, and he explains that on the little clip we've put on the Big Cat Conversations website as part of the references for this episode. It's just a minute's worth of film, but if you want to go to the website to watch it under episode 29, it gives you a flavour of John's land and where the cat went as he watched it. So thanks to John for providing us with that, and we wish him well and we'll keep in touch. Also on the website, we've put a couple of links to illustrations of black panthers with the unusual markings which we think match what John saw. This type of colour morph is called cobweb or snowflake. I remember I had an adventurous little black domestic cat and she would often come back into the house smeared in cobwebs. So it's quite an apt description. The various colour morphs that cats can exhibit are really fascinating and we'll no doubt talk about some of them in future episodes. And we're very grateful to the artist, the verdant hare, allowing us to show a splendid illustrated diagram from their website which includes a cobweb panther. In that instance it's from a jaguar, but it happens just the same for leopards. I emailed John a couple of web links which illustrate cobweb panthers and in fact there aren't very many to choose from on the web, but John responded with a mix of excitement and relief, saying that is exactly what he saw. Finally, in this section, we should mention the word vitiligo, because that could explain John's freckled panther. Vitiligo is a depigmentation of the skin. It can occur in rare instances in humans, and in some animals, including cats and dogs. You can see examples if you do a web search on vitiligo in animals. It happens from the skin losing its natural pigments. The skin will turn white or light pink in patches and hair in those spots can also turn white. From research on horses, inbreeding is known to influence instances of vitiligo. So it may be that John's panther is suggesting inbreeding, which might always be expected in a low population. A key and a concerning sign of inbreeding in large cats is the feature of very short tails. Fortunately, so far as I know, reports of very short-tailed cats other than lynx-like cats aren't coming through. Another word of the week is coming up from our second guest later on in the show, but that's our first word of the week, vitiligo. For our next guest, we have Dan Baines, and Dan is based in Kent at the moment. We're going to be hearing about an encounter from Dan of a big black cat on Dartmoor way back in 1992, so that's coming up. But we'll also discuss with Dan his background and interest and experience in things like illusion and folklore. Dan is also a podcaster, and we'll hear about that. So, Dan, thank you very much for joining us. Welcome to the show.
0: Great. Thank you for having me, Rick.
1: Okay, well, first of all, I think we may as well start with the main event, Dan. So you were in, was it the Marines in the Navy back in 1992? Yes. On a mission on Dartmoor. Please tell us all about it. Yep. Yeah,
0: sure. Well, it was part of my basic training when I was at HMS Rally, and it would have been towards late August. Part of your training is you go on to Dartmoor for a few days, and you do a long-distance team walk, where you have to get from particular point to point and then get to an RV point within a certain time frame. I was the team leader, and I say it was 28 years ago now. The memory and the experience is still very fresh in my mind. After a day on Dartmoor and just going around learning how to navigate, we went back to a place called Gutta Tor Refuge, which is on Dartmoor, and it's actually still there. It's owned by the Royal Navy, and I believe you can actually hire it out now if you wanted to. It's a tour, obviously, but it's wooded as well. So it's like a copse of woods on top of a hill and it's got a little barn that the staff would sleep in. As we were all trainees, we were all camping out on the ground. And what we were doing is we were taking turns in doing a a watch duty. So every hour someone would be woken up from the tent and they would go out and then basically stand on the gate at gutter tour and guard it as if we're guarding some form of installation, um, just getting in training for obviously when we go into the big Navy. It was my turn to be on duty, and it was about two o'clock in the morning. And my friend came and woke me from my pretty bad sleep. I wasn't—I uh, hadn't been to sleep very long. And he shook me, got me out of my bed. I walked towards the gate where I was going to spend the next hour on watch, and I had actually forgotten my torch as well. I just didn't have the time to go back either. Bearing in mind we're in basic training, so. Any sort of errors you make, you try and dust them over so no one notices. I didn't want to say, Oh, I'd forgotten my torch, so I'd go back. So I'd have just got told off and probably been disciplined for it. So I thought, Okay, well, I can manage without my torch. So I went to the main gate at Gutter Tour, and I did a handover with my fellow shipmate. And he said, You know, I said, What's happening? He goes, Nothing much, you know, just the odd car. And there's a car park just down the road. Nothing out of the ordinary. It was just a very pleasant, Summer evening, and I remember it being very light as well. Do you know sometimes when you 're out you can be out in the middle of nowhere where there is no light pollution, but just because of how clear the sky is and the stars and once your eyes get adjusted to the to the night, mm-hmm. it just seemed very bright it was almost like a bluish haze and He went off to bed, and I just stood there and it was deathly quiet, obviously, all the staff were asleep, all the lads were in their tents, and it was just me. I stood there and I was just looking out over the moors and I got a very strange feeling that I was not alone or I was being watched. And I thought I was just spooking myself because I was in the dark, no torch, in the middle of Dartmoor, half past two in the morning. But I did get a very distinct impression that there was something not right about where I was and what was happening. It would have been probably about between four and five feet away. I heard a rustle in the bushes and then I heard the most distinctive loud sort of growl from a cat the only time i've ever heard it before is when i was at a zoo as a child i'm pretty terrible at impressions but it was a kind of but like really deep at the end which kind of gave the impression it was a big creature and i say it was probably about five feet away from me in the tree line the entrance to gutter tour is actually two sort of parallel lines of trees with a driveway that goes down and it's quite close and claustrophobic the path isn't very wide nowhere way really for me to go i looked towards where this sound had come from and i couldn't see anything at all it was in the bushes and there it's evergreen trees so you know when you get a lot of evergreen trees together even in daylight they tend to be very dark it casts a lot of shadow And I I kind of backed away a little bit, and I heard it again, this really deep, very guttural...
1: It was directed at you, this noise, was it?
0: Yeah, definitely. It was definitely direct. I was the only one there, anyway. And I kind of thought, well, I'm going to stand my ground. At first, I thought it might have been the lads Mm. setting me up, you know, with a joke. But then I thought, we're not really in that environment where we're going to be doing things like that. Some of our teachers were um, raw Marines which you tend not to mess around with when you have them as staff who are training you with sort of, you know, (laughs) obviously full respect. We kind of leave them alone and everyone was on the best behavior. So, but this really loud guttural cat sound came from the bush. I heard some movement in there, um, like something was treading on the undergrowth and I kind of stood my ground and then it growled again. I thought, well, I can't run off anywhere. So I'm going to have to, if i'm going to do anything i actually sort of jolted my body towards it at the time i I, so long ago it's 28 years ago and i can't remember if i was given a nightstick or an sa80 rifle with no magazine or rounds i can't remember because when we go on these training exercises there's nothing worse than a a sailor with a loaded gun so they tend to give us baseball bats or disarmed sa80 rifles but the weapon i had i actually Jolted towards the bush as if I was kind of threatening it. so I went towards it. It didn't do anything. But then there was a a rustle all the way along the tree line. Uh, it went sort of past me, and it went all the way up to the gate at the top, which was probably about twenty five meters away. And then I saw a large black shadow jump over the wall, which was at the top of the, the gate entrance to Guttertor. And this large shadow went over. Very gently and stealth-like, I could hear it actually pad along, and then the sort of jump as it left the ground over the wall, and then it went off in a northerly direction. I never saw it again, so I didn't physically see the cat in its entirety, but I heard it at very close quarters. Even at a zoo, it was yeah, you know, it was as close as you would probably get at a zoo if there was a gosh, a big cat in a cage next to you. That's how close it
1: was presumably for the rest of the watch you were on you were on edge the whole time
0: I was yeah I kind of had to pinch myself at first I was I did I thought to myself did did I really hear that and what was it and it was at the age as well where you know I was 17 and I'd never heard of big cats being a possibility in the UK at all so I didn't really have any point of reference as to what it was. I just heard this mm. huge cat and I saw the black object jump over the wall and run away. Because of that, I didn't actually tell anybody about it because it was such a an odd experience that it was only later on in life that I did actually read about the possibility that big cats are alive and roaming around the English countryside.
1: Do you think it was there already? Or it had come along and you hadn't heard it sort of get that close to you? And do you think you were in the way and it had to change course?
0: Yeah, that is something I've thought about. I actually thought at first that I'd actually disturbed it. But looking back, um, when I did my handover with my colleague, we were quite sort of noisy and jovial and chatting. And I think anything like that would probably have scared a cat off in the night, I was standing very still, and I was just looking out over to the north, over towards Princeton. And I actually think, in retrospect, that it could have been actually sneaking up on me. And it was only the fact that I actually sensed something was behind me, that I actually maybe caught it before anything happened. I was very still, and I was on my own, and I was, you know, it was the dead of night. That feeling, I can't, looking back or thinking back, I can't actually remember if I actually heard anything coming up behind me I just had that very distinct feeling that I was Mm. being approached by something or something was definitely watching me and it wasn't until I kind of turned that movement I made of turning caused it to make the growl at me so I don't know if I was feet away from being dinner for a big cat that's something I kind of reflect on from time to time.
1: The more comfortable option is that it was used to going that way once in a while and because presumably that area is not very disturbed other than the visits from the military once in a while and it's a good place to to venture through and it does that and on this occasion you were all there and you were the one standing guard and you were in the way so it was thinking how do I get past this geezer and gave you a a warning when you sort of turned around and showed that you maybe knew it was there.
0: Yeah, it could be on its on its usual route through gutter tour. It is a quite a high vantage point and it is a copse of trees, very protective and uh, very sheltered. So I can see how that would provide some sort of safe environment or cover for um, something of that size. I think when you actually told me as well that it correlated with what your friend on Dartmoor said, it actually made me feel more confident and better about what I saw there. You know, had someone said, oh, you know, nothing's been seen in that area before, I'd have thought, well, maybe it was something else. But the fact that it kind of correlates with what your contact has said.
1: Yeah, I mean, South Dartmoor's a big area, but of course, any big cats there do have territories which are pretty extensive. Do you feel that the noise was the crucial factor, the vocalisation, the sound it made, was the key thing which made you go for cat? Had it not made a noise and you heard the padding and saw the black velvet shape jump the wall, do you think you might have been guessing what it was or do you feel you would have had from that image, even though it was dark and imperfect, you would have thought that has to be a cat?
0: I think had I not heard it, with my kind of imagination and love for all things spooky and paranormal I would have probably put it down to a more supernatural experience of seeing something almost ghost-like but the fact that it did make that noise it just confirmed to me that it was a cat of considerable size the size I could have attributed it to would be the size of a panther that type of size it was Hmm. definitely from a large animal you know like the way you know if you hear a dog bark in the night from a distance you can pretty much estimate the size of the dog from its bark and the same thing with this cat it wasn't a you know your local ginger tom crying out on top of a wall this was a huge beast four or five feet away from me
1: It would have expected you to have taken action as a result of that warning call. I think we'll interpret it as a warning call, but you didn't. It would have expected you to avoid any confrontation, so it probably was a surprise that it had to take avoiding action because you weren't budging.
0: Yeah, I feel like there was a bit of a standoff going there at one point. In my mind, the standoff seemed to have lasted for a very long time, but it probably only lasted in the region of 20 or 30 seconds. There was definitely a standoff there and there was definitely a kind of, well, I've got to hold my ground because if I don't, I'm going to possibly fail my basic training, which I wasn't prepared to do at that point. (laughs) I wasn't going to run off and wake one of the uh, Royal Marine Sergeants up. Um, I was just going to stand my ground. Plus, there was always the prospect that it could have been someone messing around, which at first, that's the first thing that crossed my mind. Because, you know, in the forces environment, you do play a lot of tricks on each other which probably goes to why I didn't actually mention anything about it the next day either because usually if someone has played a trick on you that have been oh you're right Dan how did you get on last night on your watch there would have been prompting you for a response as yeah. to what happened but there was none there was nothing at all the next day no one mentioned anything there was no prompts there was no giggles or you know you know how did it go last night there was nothing
1: Yeah. And you didn't decide to warn the person taking over watch for you because you didn't feel it was in your interest, really, even though had it been more open knowledge that there were big cats around, it would have been the right thing to do, perhaps.
0: Yeah, I think if I had prior knowledge about big cats on Dartmoor, I may have said something, but I think through fear of someone saying something the next day and just being the, the brunt of everyone's jokes for the rest of the day, I kept my mouth shut and just did a handover. And he had a torch. He had, he had a torch as well. So he was yeah, he was automatically safer than what I was. I, I really kicked myself now by not having a torch because I could have obviously
1: illuminated whatever it was. Do you think the fact that it was really in the shadows and you only had that sort of image of its dark shape jumping the wall and you heard it and heard the growl without seeing it in full, do you think that made it more sensual and more scary and more memorable? I think so,
0: yeah. Yeah, it's one of the old, um, you know, if you remove one of the sensors, then it heightens all of the others. So my visual sensors were quite impaired Mm. at the time. Even though it was a bright night, the actual sound was coming from the dark tree line. So I couldn't see anything at all. It was just pitch black. My hearing would have been heightened. And I think my sensors were just heightened anyway, because from the moment I was left alone at Gutter Tor, and I started to get the feeling that something wasn't quite right your sensor's automatically going to overdrive anyway. It did enhance the experience quite a lot. I'd say it's very, very memorable. There's a lot of aspects of my original basic training that I just can't remember. I went to a a reunion last year and they were all going on about stuff that we did on basic training that I just cannot recall doing, either through just putting it to the back of my mind because it was so awful or... But the... The, the CAT experience during the Dartmoor weekend is probably one of the most memorable things of my basic training. And ironically, it's one that I've not really shared with any of my Navy mates.
1: You can probably understand, Dan, why some people who particularly investigate or follow up reports or have an interest in big cats, they sort of yearn to see them or experience them or encounter them because it's, I think it's partly about that heightening the senses. And although there's a sort of perhaps a slight risk factor, it's all in the equation that there's something bigger and more powerful than us that's more the top dog than us. And it's that heightening of the senses that people, I think, find part of the interest and the intrigue in following this subject. You can probably appreciate that from that experience.
0: Yes, definitely. Yeah, The American Whale in London, which is a film I watched quite a few times uh, as a youngster, the, the experience of when they're walking across the moors and they can hear the creature running around them, but they can't see it because it's foggy and they can hear the howling and the growling. Looking back, I had that kind of almost horror-like experience of this sort of standoff with this creature in the darkness, in the middle of nowhere. It's an experience I don't really think a lot of people have had, and maybe people probably
1: wouldn't want to have that experience. Yeah, and incredible that it happened when you were on a vigil. You wouldn't have expected something as that extreme to happen when you were actually looking out for it.
0: <laughs> no, of course not. Well, you, know, you expect everything to happen in the daytime the Royal Marines shouting at you and making you do all sorts of unpleasant things so the nighttime, even though you're on watch for an hour and you've got broken sleep it's, it's a nice moment to have an hour to yourself to be left to your own thoughts and to be relaxed yeah. which is what it started off like initially deteriorated into a kind of an hour of being very edgy and I would say I wouldn't go as far as terrified but that point where you have to keep asking yourself, did I really experience that? Did that really happen? And the more I just thought about it, it was definitely a large creature, definitely a cat with the, you know, the sound it made the, and the size of it jumping over the wall and just the sound of it padding through the leaves because it was an evergreen kind of copse. You get a lot of the needles and the soft undergrowth on the floor. You could hear all of that sleep padding along.
1: You heard me on the Howard Hughes show, didn't you, or Howard Hughes podcast? Yes, I did. From The Unexplained on talk radio. And somebody else did, and they emailed me, and they said they were camping near Ironbridge. I think this was only two years ago. And again, it was middle of the night. They got up for a call of nature, I think. And as they were walking across to the toilet block or whatever, they were followed. They realised it was a large animal, and they fairly instantly thought, that has to be a cat. It's not a deer or a fox or a dog, it's just, and um, they got this black shape sort of image and out of the, their peripheral vision just behind them. And then suddenly it veered off and went over a wall and so that final bit was very much like yours. It wasn't threatening but they said it was remarkable that that sense of, even though it was out of their vision initially and it was silent, it was padding they just assume very quickly that this has to be a big cat that's sort of shadowing me in the night and, <laughs> yeah, very scared. Yeah. Those kinds of encounters, I think, although people are not seeing it well, it's that everything is believable because of how they're interpreting it and what they're describing and the um, emotional reaction. And another one was a military one. This was a military guy, soldier, and he was off duty, and I think he was in Scotland, in the wilds of Scotland somewhere, and he came upon a big cat... I think it was a big black leopard type cat, and it really spooked him and scared him and He said he just turned and fled and He said, as he did so, he actually started to cry, and it was in sort of involuntary thing and he said he was scared but the crying business came about because he felt he'd let himself down because he was trained to be able to deal with any confrontation situation and that was driven into him professionally and here he was in a situation having a confrontation which he was completely unprepared for and scared about and just left the scene very rapidly and the whole experience really got to him very quickly and he spontaneously just cried about it But it just shows you you can't be trained for everything even in the military
0: you can't know it's not something you expect it did take totally take me by surprise as well but I say I was only 17 and I'd not even been trained to do anything properly really other than march run across assault courses and you know do lots of press-ups and sit-ups
1: yeah and that's why you're given a replica gun at that time you're meant to be carrying something representing a gun but you're not going to use it
0: still to this day i do think you know could i have been the first armed forces chap in the uk to have been mauled by a big cat
1: you let us down dan
0: you know i'd have had a lot of scars to show you i have actually been tempted to go back you can actually hire gutter tour refuge out from the navy for um, camping weekends and it takes about 25 people and uh, i did think you know should i just get a few of the lads together some of the people I actually Mm. did basic training with I'm still in contact with should we just go up there and have a weekend away up there because I'd love to go back and just have a look at the exact points and inspect it more in the daytime because as you can imagine in the morning there was no time for me to go back and go foraging through the undergrowth looking for footprints and to sort of confirm what happened the night before it was a case of stowing us kit getting our breakfast and then going off on this 20 mile hike
1: well if you do hire it and do that then let me yeah. know and I know our local chap there will be very keen and to bring a thermal camera at night which will enhance the experience and whatever animals are about you'll be able to see them yeah. see the outline with a the thermal camera for example so yeah well can we talk about um unconventional sort of things that happen to people when they're in the military because again being on the Howard Hughes show quite often These days, before I come on or afterwards, quite often UFO reports, and quite often they are from military people. What you get the sense of is that these people, and I think this probably goes with all professions, but perhaps especially the military, clearly have not discussed it much, if at all during their professional life in the military because they probably felt it's a career-threatening admission. So they wait till they're retired or left the forces and talk about it informally after that. So that presumably does go on, Dan. You probably have heard of interesting things that people have seen and encountered and presumably some of them are more credible than others, but I imagine it does go on.
0: It does, yeah. I mean, certainly there is a reluctance amongst the forces. I would say even more so in the British Armed Forces, I listen to the Howard Hughes show quite a lot, and a lot of the ex-military people on there tend to be American. Uh, You don't get many UK armed forces or ex forces divulging many spooky stories or encounters they've had. When you actually are in the forces, there are the odd stories that float around, usually reserved for late night on ship, where you're all sitting around the mess square having a few beers, telling ghost stories, a bit like the scene from Jaws, where they're talking about who got the biggest shark bite as the ship's rolling and it's all quiet and you can tell a few stories. When I went to my reunion in Plymouth last year, I told the story that I've just told you about the big cat and everyone who was actually at the reunion with me were actually there at the time as well. Because I told that story, one of my friends actually felt then he could tell me a story about when he saw as a gunner up in Norway, he actually saw what he thought was the UFO which was quite an interesting story because he was on the upper deck position at night time. He says it was like minus 20 out there and they were only doing 10-minute shifts because it was so cold. So he was the visual on the upper deck and he says it was a beautiful clear night north of Norway. And he says he saw an object fall from the sky, which he thought at first was a shooting star, but he says it stopped a few hundred feet above the surface of the sea and then shot off horizontal to the sea and so fast that you couldn't track it. As that happened, the radar operator who was on shift at the time called up to him and asked him if he'd spotted anything. And he says, I have actually. He goes, why, did you see anything on the radar? He says, yes, I did, but I can't see it anymore. And that was it. No one mentioned anything about it after that. To this day, it was positive he saw a UFO because there's nothing else could explain an object falling from the sky and then just shooting off at that speed. Um, that it wasn't even picked up by radar when it shot off. It was there, and then it just disappeared. So he felt he could actually tell me that story. There is a kind of reluctance to tell these stories, or at least tell them to civilians. I suppose. Don't know what it is. I don't know if it's a kind of macho thing where they just you don't want to be seen as being a bit wacko or out there, or the brunt of people's jokes. And that's one thing it could be. Um, I was on HMS Heckler which was my first ship. And that was actually a hospital ship in the Falklands War. And that was used to transport a lot of the dead soldiers and sailors and also look after the sick on the way back to the UK. And there's a few ghost stories around that ship. And that was very creepy at night if you had the night shift and you had to go to the engine room to take the readings. It was not the sort of place you wanted to be on your own. But because of that, people would play a lot of tricks on each other as well to try and scare each other. But, you know, it was genuinely quite an eerie ship at night time. It still had wooden decks as well, It kind of an old ship.
1: Well, I think it goes for all professions and, and lots of realms of life that we are all conventional in most companies, aren't we? If you've had something unusual that you think a lot of people are not going to be comfortable with, you do tactically declare how and when you mention it, I think. But I imagine it's even more heightened in the military circles or any services in the police as well.
0: Yeah. I mean, I would have thought the Royal Marines would probably have seen the most as they're on Dartmoor. And they're generally out and about.
1: And have got thermal cameras. Good night vision.
0: Exactly. But they are the type of guys that if they did see something, they would definitely keep it to themselves.
1: Yeah, we get a few bits of gossip and rumour through some of our contacts who know people in the services and and military and marines. So it it does spill out a bit, but um, I think it's inevitable that people close ranks. Could we move on to your interest in folklore? Can you tell us about your podcast and then go on to some of the folklore issues? Yeah, I
0: host a podcast. Um, I've got a co-host, Fiona Marr, and we host the, the Fairy Podcast, which it is about fairy folklore but not your typical Disney-type fairies. It goes back into fairy folklore from places like Iceland and Scandinavia and Ireland and also the old folklore of Great Britain before Disney got their hands on everything and made it all flower fairy and nice. So we host a podcast which delves into different aspects of folklore surrounding that. Big cats do appear quite a lot, as you're probably quite well aware, in the more fortian areas where I think they're generally called like ABCs, alien big cats or phantom cats, where they're made out to be more supernatural than actual physical creatures that have become integrated into our environment. They're always closely connected as well with other sightings. And I think one of the most sort of prolific places in the UK where there's pretty much everything you can possibly think of from UFOs to almost like a Bigfoot type hairy man encounter Lots of weird creatures and lights in the skies, and especially ABCs or phantom cats, is Canic Chase in Birmingham.
1: West of Birmingham, yeah. We've touched on Canic Chase in the podcast, and we've actually put a message out to listeners. And contacts that we'd like to hear from people from Canic Chase because there are very credible reports that I think are in a zoological context from Canic Chase of big cats. In fact, I think I mentioned on one of the podcasts that we had a ranger from there have to recover half an eaten out a roe deer that was well up a tree, and he was open-minded about whether there might be big cats. He'd heard about the reports, and he said when he recovered this, it was absolutely in no doubt he was recovering a leopard stash, basically. He and his colleagues agonised about what to do, if anything, and what to mention to anybody about it, but they decided there was nothing much they could do. They didn't have the resources or capability to follow up, and so they just thought, "Wow, well, you know, this is a bit of evidence, but move on, nothing to see, move on.
0: Any expanse of woodland is generally deemed to be creepy. You know, if you go into the woods at night on your own, you're likely to have a spooky experience of some description just because <laughs> you're not used to that environment, any sounds or... It's just things you're not used to. Even though places like Cannock Chase do have legends of things like black-eyed girls and like a a Bigfoot creature and UFOs, most wooded areas tend to have these types of legends anyway. And it's just that obviously if there is a big cat sighting or there is a, a genuine big cat living in the woods, in certain circles it's going to be seen one of the supernatural aspects of everything that's going off there rather than it being a natural sighting.
1: Yes. Well, the word panic comes from pan of the woods, doesn't it? So you panic when you're in the woods. So there's the connection.
0: Because it's very easy to get lost.
1: Yeah. And this business of the treatment of big cats in the paranormal realm, in the paranormal context, is interesting. There's a word that I introduced on the podcast early on, preternatural, which means nature at the limits of its capability that we don't really understand and I think that's one of the problems with our appreciation of lots of mammals and wildlife and especially wild cats and especially things like pumas and leopards we really don't understand the stealthy realms they can live in and they occupy so things may be seen to us as potentially paranormal which are just them being super furtive like they have to be. We present them as almost paranormal and other to the natural world when that's not the case, perhaps. Can we get on to your professional experience in illusion?
0: I've been an illusion designer. I kind of fell into it by accident. I just developed an interest in magic, and, but being a terrible performer, I just started to develop my own ways of doing magic I come from obviously an intelligence and forensics based background. So I tend to analyze things and look at things from different angles. That's helped me out in illusion and stage design. And that's where I primarily work. So I'm a prop and illusion designer. So I work for stage productions and magic shows, you know, all over the place, really America, Las Vegas, it's just being able to fool your audience. It is all about being good at deception, I suppose. That's what it boils down to.
1: Do we have to be careful that we don't deceive ourselves within our special interests?
0: Yeah, definitely. I mean, the brain is the best tool of illusion there is. You can see something and your brain can make something completely different out of it, which we've all fallen prey to at some point. When we're looking at images, uh, when I worked in the audio and video forensic field, I used to analyze a lot of video footage and audio footage It's always good to look at something with a fresh set of eyes. We always used to, uh, if a piece of evidence came in um, that was video footage or even audio, we would want to look at it and listen to it before anyone else told us what they thought was on there. And then ask afterwards what they thought was happening or what they thought was being said or what was happening in the background. Obviously, your expectation clouds your perception.
1: It's great to hear you can be professionally employed to do that all around the world. um, We'll look out for your work. And, of course, you've got that on your website. What's your website called, Dan?
0: If you just go to danbaines.com or just Google Dan Baines, it'll come up with quite a lot of my work and things I've been involved with in the past. My design is all quite sort of Gothic and Victorian, so it's quite unique
1: and niche. Excellent. Yeah, now we're going to carry on this tantalising balance between reality and illusion and the human psyche. In this Word of the Week, I've asked you if you'll talk about the word tulpa, T-U-L-P-A, because I guess you talk about it or relate to tulpa type things on your podcast. I'll have a go at explaining it, but I would like you to develop it and correct my explanation probably. As far as I understand it, a tulpa is something which It could be a person, a being, or something that somebody's interested in to the extent that they imagine it so well that they sort of almost create it and it becomes a reality. And so I think it is relevant to the big cat issue because some of the sceptics I hear sometimes saying, oh, people crave a big predator in their lives and more wildness in their lives. And so they invent the creature that they're desperate to experience. So that's a tulpa-type explanation to me. Is that how you would sort of define tulpa?
0: I would. Yeah, that's pretty much it. It is a it's a Tibetan concept of a if you think about something long and hard enough, you actually conjure it into being a reality. So it's like a magic formation basically generated by powerful concentration. The thing is with tulpas, what happens supposedly is is once you've generated them, initially they're under your control, you can do things with them, but they actually just generate their own personality and will and actually go off and can become quite malevolent. The word tulpa as well is cast about quite a lot in the paranormal community because people can tend to stick it onto anything. Is Bigfoot a tulpa or are grey aliens a tulpa? It's generally to do with modern culture. So like with fairies back in, say, the 1800s, they tended to be, or if you go back even further than that, so sort of 16th, 1700s, fairies tended to be the size of small children, three feet high, no wings, generally scruffy-looking, gnome-like characters. But as folklore has progressed, they've become smaller and smaller and smaller, and at some point they actually grew wings, which they never had. But people still report seeing them, even as they change their appearance. Now, is it the fact that they are tulpas that have been just generated through how modern culture portrays the actual thing to look? So everyone knows what it should look like. Therefore, if everyone thinks it hard enough, then it actually puts these creatures into physical form for a certain period of time. It would explain a lot of things, especially with Bigfoot phenomenon, how something Like Bigfoot is able to avoid detection and can almost disappear at will. One minute it's there, next minute it's not. Is it because it's a dimensional being? Is it because it's purely a thought form that's generated and is there one minute and gone the next? Or is it an actual physical creature?
1: Yeah. It works both ways, doesn't it? Because it's convenient for the sceptics of whatever phenomenon you're talking about, uh, because they can just say, oh, these are tulpas, or they might not use the word, but they mean something to that effect because they feel that what's being described and experienced allegedly is too preposterous to consider. But it's also something you've got to be careful about if you're into whatever topic you're talking about, because some things perhaps can be blamed as just missightings or paradoilia or tulpas, and you've got to be open to all of those alternative explanations, I guess.
0: Exactly. The word tulpa is banded about quite a bit could almost be a blank canvas really where a human mind can actually project anything onto it in order to create it. The tulpa could be just one generic thing which can be visualized in lots of different ways depending what you want it to look like. I think the the Harry Potter version is the boggart, I think, which is a creature which just appears as whatever thing you're scared of the most. It appears as, even though it's like just it is an actual just one typical type of creature. It can change itself to look whatever you want it to look like the tulpa could be that in the fact that it's just a blank canvas that just appears how modern society wants it to look at that particular time good example is our modern representation of aliens is the gray alien but if you look back at fairy folklore everything that gray aliens do is exactly what fairies did two or three hundred years ago the creature has changed from a fairy to an alien because our society nowadays is more accepting of the fact that aliens could exist and not that fairies could exist
1: i think one of the most vivid and thought-provoking examples of this potentially is the bipedal canid in america is often called the dog man the link to the the werewolf in previous times you know before that you know bipedal half-human half-dog-like figures through history and is that a tulpa some of those are extremely compelling witness reports, either very good tulpas or something else.
0: <laughs> yeah, and the spectral dogs, obviously, we have in the UK as well, around Norfolk, There's it black shook, I mean, large black dogs?
1: In Gloucester, near me, there's a black dog pub, there's a black dog way. Many regions of Britain have got their black dog sightings folklore. And some of the people who believe that We could have missed a big cat through history in Britain. There's one just undocumented. The challenge back to them is, well, if we had a big predator like a big cat through history it would be represented in our folklore more. Well, they point to the fact, well, we had this very strong black dog folklore. And actually, if you look at the descriptions, if you read the descriptions and some of the images of those black dogs, they are very cat-like. And their argument would be that people were actually experiencing and seeing and witnessing big black cats. But it came across as a black dog. So there's all of that. It all adds to the intrigue, doesn't it? No doubt there'll be more as our big cat interests develop and become more complex. Perhaps there'll be more folklore emerging on big cat issues. But it's good that you follow it in your podcast or on your interests.
0: We cover quite a lot in the podcast. We generally have interviews with quite well-known people within the the field of fairies who have either done documentaries or have written books. I think people initially think they're looking at I think the fairy podcast or are, are expecting lots of glitter and butterfly wings and tinkly music. But we're kind of all about keeping the original concept of fairy folklore alive and delving back further into history and looking at older accounts, which generally are quite malevolent and definitely not what you would expect to find in a Disney movie.
1: Finally, the question we ask everyone, what do you think about big cats more generally living in the wild? Not just one isolated case in southern Dartmoor in 1992. What about the bigger picture? Any views on our bigger picture of big cats? Real ones, not tulpas?
0: I'm 100% positive that there are big cats living in the UK. I mean, people do say that, oh, you know, look at the size of the UK. It's It's not a huge place, but there are places you can go in the UK and you can walk and not see anybody for hours on end. It's not as enclosed and claustrophobic that people make out. You know, I'm from Derbyshire originally and I'd go out onto um, Kinder Scouts when I was training to go in the Navy and I'd put a backpack on and I'd go running up there in February and I wouldn't see anybody from the moment I parked the car to the moment I got back. So it just goes to prove that there is an environment out there that big cats could survive in and I've no doubt they are out there. And do I think they're, detrimental to the environment? Not really. I think there's been no reports of people being you know, physically attacked to the point they've actually been hospitalised, although I feel I was quite close <laughs> at one point. If they're there, they tend to keep themselves to themselves and they live amongst us, but very stealth-like. And uh, I'm kind of happy
1: they are there. I think it's quite exciting. Before you came on, I wasn't thinking the extent to which it might have been truly threatening but you may be right. It may have been prepared to follow you with intent if you hadn't have uh, stood up to it, but we'll never know. And that's part of the intrigue as well, isn't it?
0: It is. I probably smelled pretty bad at the time. I'd probably not showered for a few days and
1: it wouldn't have been the best meal around,
0: but I've probably looked quite scary when I turned round. I suppose.
1: Brilliant. Dan, thanks ever so much for wandering through all these fascinating topics with us. Thanks ever so much, Dan. Cheers.
0: Great. Yeah, thanks, Rick. It's been a pleasure.
1: Okay, we don't have any special announcements this time, so just a quick note about our next instalments. We've promised a Scotland episode shortly, and we're actually still doing a bit of homework for that one, so it's slightly delayed, but probably with you in two episodes' time. For the next episode, our main guest will be someone who made contact after our last show, which heard from Andrew on the side of the River Severn, where he had a close incident with a Black Panther, which followed him for a bit. For this next show we've another similar but more intense case of our guest and his dog being stalked by a large cat. We'll hear about that and discuss all the issues it raises. Also in preparation is an episode about the past major spells of big cat activity in the Bodmin Moor area and the Exmoor areas. And we'll hear from people who are centrally involved in events to get their reflections on it all now. Righto, time to sign off for this show. Thanks again to our guests and thank you everyone for listening in. Till next time, take care and all the best.